Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Landscape architecture, I'm going to say unabashedly that it is the location of solutions to environmental threats caused by climate change. Hey, adapters, a very bold statement on what landscape architecture means to adaptation. We're going to dig into that, so stick around. Hey, adapters, welcome back to another episode. This is a very exciting episode. I go on location to the 2017 ASLA conference in Los Angeles. ASLA stands for the American Society of Landscape Architects. I spent five days interviewing some of the best and brightest in the field. This is a big but epic podcast. It's well worth your time if you want to learn more about a field taking a leadership role in adapting to climate change. My hope is that this podcast will be the definitive resource to learn how landscape architecture as a sector is stepping up on adaptation. First off, this episode would not be possible without the generous sponsorship of Anova Furnishing. Anova's mission is the design and manufacture of beautiful and comfortable outdoor furniture that helps communities come together. They are also very interested in promoting landscape architecture as a field. Again, thanks to Anova for helping promote both landscape architecture and the critical need for society to adapt to climate change. All right, some housekeeping. So thank you to those adapters supporting America Adapts. We are now a nonprofit organization accepting tax-deductible donations. Go to americaadapts.org and you can easily find the donate page where you can give a one-time donation or better yet, a recurring monthly donation. I always say this, for the price of a large cafe latte a month, you can support a podcast bringing you the best and brightest in the world of adaptation. For foundations and corporate donors looking to sponsor a podcast, please contact me through the website at americaadapts.org. All right, so future episodes. Next up is Chad Nelson, the CEO from the Surfrider Foundation. Then I'm doing a podcast sponsored by the World Wildlife Fund telling stories of how snow leopards are adapting to climate change in Central Asia. You guys are going to love these episodes. I look forward to sharing them. Okay, now let's all take a journey to the City of Angels to learn more about landscape architects adapting to climate change. Hi, adapters. Welcome to Los Angeles in the American Society of Landscape Architects annual conference. So to kick things off, I've invited Ellen Stewart, Senior Landscape Architect in the Department of Parks and Recreation for St. Paul, Minnesota. Welcome to the podcast, Ellen. Thanks, Doug. Good to talk to you again. So some of you might recognize Ellen's name. I actually had her on for a brief interview. I want to give a little bit of background here. I actually met Ellen at the National Adaptation Forum in St. Paul back in the spring. So we had a nice conversation about landscape architects and their role in adaptation. And Ellen had this great idea of me doing a full podcast covering the LA conference. So here we are. Thank you, Ellen. My question to you is, why did you think an adaptation podcast should focus on the Landscape Architect Conference? I really felt like it was something that was missing from the adaptation forum back in the spring. And I there weren't very many landscape architects at that event. And I thought it'd be great for you to be able to come and learn more about what we do. You've got a broad audience of different types of professionals. And we need to get our voice out there in a way that people recognize us as doing a lot of work in the adaptation world. We design a lot of great spaces and we do a lot of work that is related to it. And I think that we just need to make sure that we are heard as well and that we are recognized. And so I thought this would be a great opportunity for you to come out and see what we do, but also project that forward. I'm looking forward to having some of these conversations. I've 
been in touch with a few people in advance, but I'm, I'm hoping the landscape architect field is open to, to what I have to do there. So you and I are going to check back in after a couple days. I want to see wh- what you've been up to and I, I can tell you a little bit about what I've been up to. But on that note, any sort of words of wisdom before we get started? Oh, no, I think just you want to talk to as many people as you can. As soon as you hear somebody that says something that sounds interesting to you, I hope you can grab their time and attention and get a great interview from them. All right, great. Well, I'll talk to you in a couple of days. Okay, great. Thanks. Hey, Adapters, we are back in Los Angeles, and I am with... Vaughn Renner. I'm the president of the ASLA. So what are we doing here? What is this event? Uh, we meet every year and we get a huge turnout because we uh, see all the new products of what people are doing and we have these uh, tremendous number of educational sessions that tell us all about what people are doing in the world and of landscape architecture. So uh, for the number of people we have in the profession, it's a huge meeting and we all look forward to it. So how many people actually show up? I think, I don't know how many the final number is, but it's over 6,000 people. Okay, wow. So how many have you gone to over your career? Oh, I don't think I could count them, but probably 15. I mean, I've been going for years, maybe more than that. Well, the reason I ask, you are the president of the organization, and so you're at the center of a lot of the changes that are taking place. But do you have any observations of when you first started going to this conference and what's happening now at the conference? Oh, yes. I think we're looking at much more forward-thinking uh, big issues that we know that we have to deal with because we really are designers of green infrastructure and different kinds of systems that, that really contribute to resilience of cities and communities to climate change. And, and we really find that we're talking about that a lot more. I, one of the things I would say is that, that landscape architects really connect a lot of other professions and a lot of other specialties together. And we see more and more discussion of how we interact with different communities. And also, the other thing that's really unique about this profession is that we really think of global scale. We do very large planning and intervention projects, and we also are extremely detailed and local. So it's uh, kind of really acknowledging that and really talking about those bigger issues much more than we used to. So as an organization, I mean, I hear about climate change through various landscape architects and projects they're working on, but ASLA, what would you say are major, major initiatives or things that you are doing on the issue of climate change? Well, one of the things we do that's really top priority for us is we do advocacy at both the federal and state and local levels. And one of the things that we advocate about is really getting the much more resilient kinds of spaces. So a lot about green infrastructure and green infrastructure in a very big way. It's a lot of stormwater management and, and rain gardens and those kind of things, but it also includes how getting a lot of green space, getting connected green space, working with bioregions, looking at how to create corridors for both people and animals and really get one of the things that, that some of us talk about a lot is sponge cities, really trying to get our environments so that we can absorb and keep water and, and move it around. I have a lot of listeners that are adaptation professionals, and what could you say to them, to, to, I guess, to say that this conference is a good use of their time if they're if they're just wanting to do adaptation? Oh, well, I think adaptation is just a huge part of the whole thing. And and because we really need to think, you know, about the, the big thing that landscape architects do is they kind of work with the natural and built environment. So we're really taking everything from the built environment out and sometimes within buildings, more and more within buildings, in fact, and, and really looking at how all the different kinds of adaptations. So 
there's so many different kinds of aspects of that that we deal with and that people are working on these kind of amazing projects uh, from cultural kinds of things to environmental to places for people to gather and community spaces. And so there's a huge variety of people talking about their projects and there's also this huge variety we one of the reasons we have these uh, big meetings is that we have this huge expo where people come and talk about all their products and things so it's all about adapting communities and and adapting the places we live and work where's next year's conference at next year we're in philadelphia so mid-october or late october in Philadelphia, and it's going to be a great meeting. We love Philadelphia, and it, uh, part of what we do is we have a lot of field sessions. We go out and see what people have been doing. We have a lot of tours and things like that, too. So it's it's kind of a nice place to come in terms of getting introduced to what the communities that we meet within are doing. So just as a non-landscape architect attending your meeting, just some feedback for you as president. People have been very welcoming and very enthusiastic that the field is being recognized for doing things on climate change. So I just wanted to give you that feedback because I think it is a growing area and I just think there's a it's a nice fit for the whole adaptation field. But that's just some feedback for you. It's just been great. People have been very nice and enthusiastic that I'm doing this. Oh, great. Yeah, it's it's so true that it's just such a natural fit in terms of that. And and we're all about, you know, collaboration. That's what this profession really is. Landscape architecture is about collaborating with people like adaptation different kinds of environmental scientists, of working with other kinds of design. Uh, we've had a lot of emphasis here on how we work with artists, for example. So we'd love to have all of your listeners come to our meeting. I think it'd be well worthwhile. All right, Philadelphia, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you very much. Hey, Adapters, we are back at the Landscape Architects Conference. I am with... Christina Hill, and I'm an associate professor at the University of California in Berkeley. I saw you present yesterday talking about sea level rise, and that's an area of expertise for you. So what are you really doing in that field? Well, my expertise is really in adaptation and how we might change to be able to both accommodate and, in some cases, live well with sea level rise. All right, so I'm here to discover how the field of landscape architecture is approaching adaptation. And I'm just curious, your opinion, how is the field doing? Where are they at? You know, please elaborate. I mean, do you, is it early days? Do you feel that they're leaders in the field? What, what's your sense? I think it's still early days. I think that the resilience by design work that Rockefeller has done has pushed the fields. And now it's architecture, landscape architecture, engineering working together. And the people who are in those collaborations are moving forward the fastest People who are outside of it in landscape architecture are doing kind of pastiche, Photoshop, super dikes along the shoreline, and I think that's a huge mistake. There are these landscape architect schools, and do you sense that the curricula is incorporating climate change? And if it is, what are sort of the courses that people would take? Yeah, um, some of the courses we've taught before, like hydrology or site topography and drainage, and those are the courses that need to incorporate new information along with our plants courses about how the environment is changing. And I think that those departments that are incorporating it into their core technical curriculum are moving ahead the fastest rather than the ones that are making it a special studio thing that's not part of their core curriculum. So I went to a couple sessions yesterday, and climate change was in the title, but then I sensed from the presentations that they were really just pitching sustainability 
as adaptation or climate change. And I don't know if you agree with that approach, but I, since sustainability has been around for a while, and I'm curious what, what you think of maybe some people in the field still holding on to that notion that it's the same thing. It's hard for people who are who have built a career in 20, 30 years of talking about sustainability and environmentalism to accept that that environment is changing so much that you really can't sustain what we have now. And that's a process an individual has to go through in an institution, a firm, or a department to recognize that doing it the old way is not going to work. So it's a process. Not everyone's gone through it. And I wish that people would because a lot of that sustainability talk and the design strategies are just not right for the world we're going to see forming around us. One of the presentations, and I'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus, but it was talking about campuses adapting to climate change. And it was two California campuses and an Arizona campus. And they really talked about drought and energy issues. And it wasn't really getting into adaptation. And I asked a question, of, okay, what about coastal campuses that might be impacted by sea level rise? And the response I got was, oh, that's a question we need to think about in five years. And I was sort of taken aback. And I'm just curious your thoughts of that kind of response. Well, there's a lag. So we see, you know, the focus on drought in California. We had a bad drought for five, ten years that just broke partly last year. So people have really been focused on drought and they want to celebrate the work they did. And drought's going to be part of our climate change future. So it's good that they're doing that work. But sea level rise is something people tend to put off because they say, oh, it's going to be three feet by 2100, six feet by 2100, as if between 2099 and 2100, that change is going to happen when actually it's changing now, and it's something that's affecting our infrastructure and affecting our ability to live on the coast now. You used a term yesterday, and I'm sure it's a common term in your universe, but it's the first time I've heard of it, and I think I know a little bit about adaptation. It's floodable development. Could you explain what that is? That's something that the, the Dutch and the Germans have developed because they wanted to be able to develop uh, intensively thriving urban districts in places that are at risk of flooding a couple times a year. And uh, they wanted to address their housing market issues, pricing, by building a lot more housing. So it's really being led by the public sector in uh, the Netherlands and in Germany. And it means that you build in such a way that flooding can happen, but no one has to evacuate. Okay, and so the United States, they're going through a review of the National Flood Insurance Program. Should we allow people to rebuild in flooding areas? And I'm just curious if floodable development sort of matures and you start seeing more of it, maybe there's an opportunity for you to build in these flood zones, which would probably give a lot of environmentalists heartburn, even if you come up with those good models. I'm curious, how could the advancement of that kind of development negatively impact things? The bad side of floodable development probably would be that people will claim something is floodable when it isn't, and it'll decay quickly and end up being a liability. Another bad side could be not being prepared for moisture issues that cause molds. That's a big deal in California. But the idea that we'll take over the floodplain with development, I think in most of the places where this would be something people would pursue, floodable development, there has to be enough capital already and infrastructure to support urbanization. So there must already be development there. So I think that in most cases, it's not going to take away from what wetlands we could have. And in fact, manage ponds, which is what a lot of the floodable development uses, putting floating structures on ponds, Managed ponds can be part of the mix of habitats that support a native ecosystem. So I don't think it's necessarily all bad. They can be used to manage water quality. But there's a tension between people who think that as sea level rises, wetlands will move inland. And that tension is real. We have to figure out how to sustain wetland environments 
because otherwise they'll be flooded out and collapse down to mudflats as sea levels rise, the same way an urban area could be flooded out. Probably one of the most recurring problems with some of my guests is what number do you stick to with sea level rise? And I'm curious, over in Europe, I just had a guest on and he went up to six feet by 2100 when it came to, he did a a study on where people will migrate in the United States, who will lose people, who will gain people. How do you get to a number? I know the IPCC has a spectrum, but at the end of the day, people need a hard number to plan around. Where do you start from? The Bay Area has been using four to six feet, which literally means, I mean, in practice, it means six feet. Because what's the point of having the four there? Right. You know, it's really, we're talking about, if we're talking about six feet, we're talking about six feet. Six feet by 2100, and that's the regional public agencies have set that as a planning goal. And I think that's appropriate from a public policy side. New information's coming out of the West Antarctic, which, of course, the American West Coast is closely linked to in terms of how much sea level rise we will see on the West Coast. And that new information suggests that it should go to nine. So the California governor's office is considering issuing statewide guidance on public projects of nine feet by 2100. I think the state of Rhode Island has already adopted that guidance, that nine foot. I think that from a public policy perspective, we should look at nine feet and try to protect our shared tax dollar investments at that level. But we have to be careful to make sure that we don't strand any assets, that we don't lift something to nine feet today that actually would be replaced as part of a capital replacement program before 2100. So it doesn't mean everything should be built nine feet higher today. It means that things that will still be expected to be in service by 2100 should be built to a nine-foot higher standard. And in some systems like highways or sewage systems, that has big, big implications for what happens upstream. And there may have to be temporary pumping stations or something that help with that elevation change because everything that flows by gravity or that has a limit in slope like a highway When you change the elevation of something, it has implications way back through the system. So we have to be careful about that and not make it impossible to adapt by choosing too high a standard. So your area is sea level rise. I imagine you get involved with other other things associated with adaptation. But are there any opportunities that you're getting involved in or lessons to be learned from Hurricane that hit Houston or even Puerto Rico in regards that you have these flooding events and there is a relation to sea level rise. So are you going to get involved with any of the sort of post-storm events? Yeah, in fact, I spent uh, eight years working on New Orleans after Katrina in the Dutch dialogues process where the Dutch embassy brought Dutch firms, and I learned a lot from that process. I think that was a big exchange of knowledge between American designers and Dutch designers. Um, and now we are more, more prepared as a result of those dialogues. I have worked in areas that are post-disaster. I worked in the Virginia coast, um, and they have hurricanes regularly. And I think that that's a challenging problem because people's minds go to the height of the storm surge and needing to develop structures that are preventing flooding for a 30-foot storm surge. And in that 30-foot storm surge, sea level rise seems like a really small thing, even three feet or six feet. So when you're talking to people who live in a hurricane-prone area, or heavy, heavy rainfall, like what we saw in um, places that were affected by Hurricane Harvey. You have to think a little bit differently about how the pieces work together. But it's an event, and events can be recovered from, no matter how bad it is. We're sitting in California waiting for an an 8.0 earthquake. Seattle's waiting for a 9. Events can be recovered from, but it's the permanent changes like sea level rise or changes in precipitation that are effectively permanent, those are the ones that I think are more challenging for humans to really understand. 
Well, what I think, too, is that these hurricane events, when there's all this money that comes in to rebuild these areas, they're not investing the money in adaptation like we'd like to see. And so I think a lot of people in our universe piggyback on the storm events like Hurricane Sandy. Now, let's drive some adaptation planning. And so take advantage of the situation a bit. Yeah, but I think, unfortunately, what they do is they oversize things. They bring in steel sheet piling. They build walls higher. And they may not be providing for the right adaptive mix like floodable development instead of uh, sheet piling steel walls. Okay, last question. I get inquiries from my listeners, especially younger ones, about how they can get involved with adaptation. And just what could you say to them about the field of landscape architecture that is welcoming field for them if they want to do adaptation? Well, I think the field has been changing a lot for the last 40 years, and this is really just another push to incorporate activism, to look at social equity issues, to look at ecology, and now to look at adaptation. And it's an excellent time to be in the field because it is changing a lot, and a new generation of leaders are really creative in those areas. There's a lot of room for young people to come in who want to work on that. Also, civil engineering, but I think landscape architecture is special because it's about um, ecology, urban development, and people in a richer way than civil engineering has been. From my understanding as I learn more, there's an idealistic thread in landscape architecture you might not find in maybe civil engineering and such. And so I think there's a, a nice opportunity to communicate what adaptation is through this field. Yeah, and to make sure that you're not falling into the trap of using an icon of resilience or adaptation, like you know putting a big super dike in a drawing without really thinking through how things work. And landscape architecture is, at its best, process-based. It's based on how water flows, how groundwater moves, how soil moves, how animals move, and how people make decisions and share their values. So I think it's a great place to have this conversation. I just wish it was a bigger field so that it could be a little more dominant and perceived as leading the conversation. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Hey, Adapters, we are back here in Los Angeles, and I am with... Deanna Lynn. I'm a master's student at the University of Oregon studying landscape architecture. Is this your first conference? My first ASLA national conference. Are you a member? Um, I am now. <laughs> so they signed you up. So why did you come to the conference? Well, I am on the ASLA student committee at the University of Oregon, and so I want to help represent my department, and I'm interested in what are current concerns and practices in the field. Okay, so five to ten years from now, what do you think you'll be doing or what do you want to be doing? So I want to be restoring ecosystems. I want to be creating landscapes that draw down carbon from the atmosphere. And I want to create places that contribute to a healthy public life, could create community, connect people, and also places that provide food for people. Plant, plant a lot of food. Okay, so you are in graduate school now. Do you feel like you hear a lot of talk of adapting to climate change in your coursework or what the, your professors are doing? Somewhat. We definitely talk about it, but I, I think it could be integrated more into the curriculum. What do you think is missing? We, we met at a, a session yesterday and it was on climate change and you know we had a little bit of a chat about that. So y you seem like you really want to jump into that issue. Yeah. I mean, it'd be great if there was a course about sequestering carbon, about sea level rise and really addressing 
these issues with design. So what have been some of your favorite sessions so far? I really enjoyed the session that we met at with um, Martha Schwartz and Pamela Conrad talking about climate change. And yesterday I got to see Konjian Yu at a session about the creative process, and uh, he's a big inspiration to me. What would you say to uh, potential students in landscape architecture to get them to want to get into this field? Well, I think this field has a big potential to address some of the most pressing issues of our time with climate change, even social justice. There's a big inequity has a big basis in landscapes and people living where there aren't the resources they need to survive, support their families. And so landscape architecture can address so many issues. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, Adapters, we are back here at the ASLA conference. I am with Martha Schwartz from Martha Schwartz Partners. I'm a founding principal of the company. We do landscape architecture, and I'm a professor in practice at Harvard's Graduate School of Design. Well, for those not familiar with the field of landscape architecture, Martha is a legend in the field, and it's a great honor for me to be talking with you, so thank you very much. First off, I want to talk a little bit about this presentation that you did today, and what, what were you trying to accomplish with it? Actually, we were trying to accomplish a lot, but it's really trying to get the word out about climate change and to activate people, the profession, and to talk about the urgency of the situation and to go beyond adaptation to mitigation because we are running out of time to do that. And it's important that we, as a profession, own it because we're landscape architects. And there's so much that we can do as landscape architects to join in the fight to basically save ourselves, to save our ecosystems so that we can cool down the environment. Well, I had a chance to talk to your partner in crime, Pamela Conrad, and it was interesting, and I'm going to talk to her tomorrow, that you did not focus on adaptation. And my, this podcast is mainly about adaptation, but we do talk about mitigation. And so you've made a sort of strategic choice to go to mitigation. But do you feel that the rest of your field is already well enough caught up on adaptation? No, uh, I don't think it's caught up well enough on adaptation or resilience. But for sure, it hasn't entertained mitigation. And I've been particularly in my own mind and from what I know and understand, it's a concept we have to entertain because we can't continually adapt the way the projections are. And what science shows us is that at some point, climate change is going to be on a runaway cycle where we can't put the genie back into the bottle. It just, the environment will just continue to heat up. And at some point, the earth becomes unlivable, at least for large mammals like ourselves. It's not like it's going to wipe out everything. Nature will continue, but humankind may not. And there's only so much adaptation that is possible. So we need to be thinking in advance because I think that in the end, we're going to be dependent upon technologies and geoengineering that will be cooling down the atmosphere. We're going to need that. We're in a big conference room and it was full of people not too long ago. And there was a lot of energy at the end of your, your session about what can we do now. But then at the end of the day is my understanding landscape architects is, and I think I overheard you, it's just 
what are the billable hours? And so to go from a landscape architect who might be at a private firm or even within a government agency, changing that focus to mitigation, do you have clients that are asking for that or do you just work for a private firm that's only going to deal with those kind of projects? Well, as I said, one can only do what one can do, but you've got to do that. I'm conflicted by this issue of practice versus what we can do as an individual versus what can we do as a group. But our job is really to educate. My job, I'm an educator, so my job is to educate students. Our job collectively as professionals is to educate our clients. Otherwise, we're no good as consultants and to bring awareness of climate change to the table in our practice. I mean, after all, it's the developers and the planners and, you know, the, the politicians who are making these decisions about what's going to be built and who's going to live where and land use decisions and what's going to be developed. So it's not a bad place to be. You can be a practitioner and make change, but we're in a position where we have to educate people to the issue of climate change. I'm always surprised at how little the people who are our clients really know about what's facing them very soon in the future. There are very few people at the table who even bring that up as an issue. And I'm always asking, well, what are your plans for climate change so that you can actually future-proof your project? So when they start to understand the issues, which I can tell them in terms of what we can do as landscape architects to help them, all of a sudden they're, they're very interested because you're bringing them information they didn't have before. And if you can tell them that there are ways that they can help themselves, uh, they're interested in that too. So I think that as a practitioner, there's a role for education. Um, there's a role, role as teachers to, to teach there's a role for us to act on our own with our friends. As I said in the, in the lecture we gave is that we have to figure out as individuals what we can do and do that. And that can open up other ideas for how we can become activists. But it really is, it is a crisis. So we have to act accordingly and we have to do what we can do. As you pivot to mitigation, I hope that you still stick with adaptation a bit because there is this warming baked in that we're going to be dealing with for hundreds of years. And so I hear from younger listeners who discover adaptation. They're very curious and they want to get into this field. And I'd be, what would you say to them that landscape architecture has as a future for them? Is, are the universities there talking about adaptation? Is it an opportunity for them? Well, we need to deal with this at all levels. I mean, it's not like one obviates the other, that we can deal with uh, resiliency issues. We have to stick with adaptation because that's where we are now in terms of trying to adapt to the situation as it is now and maybe in the short-term future. And that doesn't take away the necessity for planning into the a bit farther future and what the likelihood is going to be in terms of the need for mitigation. And the reason for that is that there's a lot that we can't know and we can't project 
because of the difficulty in making climate projections. So these things are always changing. It's why the initial climate projections don't have the fact that the Arctic is melting much faster or that the Greenland shelf is melting or that the Antarctic is calving. I mean, there, there are so many things that have happened since the IPCC made their first projections. Adaptation is absolutely essential, but it's adaptation and mitigation because the mitigation part of it is about the future and what we can do to speed things up. We don't have to mitigate as much. On the adaptation side, for a while there, there was this controversy. It's like, well, if you focus on adaptation, that means you've thrown in the towel on mitigation. And anyone on the adaptation side is like, no, 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 we need to mitigate or things get out of control and you can't adapt to these future projections. And so I think that is being addressed. But I, I get your point here because I get pressure just from listeners. They want to hear a bit more about mitigation and I really do focus more on adaptation. And uh, you're bringing up some good points with that. So I have just a couple more questions here. And again, there was a lot of great energy here. I don't know if you even captured some of the thinking going on in this room, but so what's next? What do you want? There was talk of groups or policy groups. What do you want to do next with this? And how can you encourage it? And if people are out there listening, landscape architects are listening to this and they want to follow up with you or ASLA to say, we need an adaptation committee or, or a mitigation committee. What do you, what do you propose? And I'm putting you on the spot. You are putting me on the spot because the way I've approached this is very organically. I don't have any big answers. I'm doing what I can do. And I feel good that the profession has made some real strides forward in one year. In both the ASLA and the LAF, there are vehicles now present within these two really important organizations that can it's a place where we can have these conversations. And the missing part is being able to connect more people, their collective will, the ideas that they have, what they need within the profession, and then how do we actually actuate those professionally? How do these organizations serve the profession and the professionals and the teachers and all of us who are working together. So it's a, it's like a feedback loop. I would say that if people wanted to contact me, they should contact me and I'll do my best to try to organize myself so that I can do this. But you know, it's hard to run a practice, which I do. It's an international practice. I mean, we have projects all over the place. It's crazy. And I teach also. I have kids. I mean, it's, um, you know, I'm busy, but I would like to do what I can. So what does one do? You offer yourself if there isn't really anybody else around. So it's, yeah, I mean, I, I, maybe I can set up a platform where people can log in or a blog site or be able to organize people who want to organize and want to be heard and want to have answers to these questions. I can't provide them right now, but I've heard, I've heard feedback. I am working within the LAF on the Climate Action Change Committee. I will be working with the ASLA. So I do have a voice there amongst many, but I, I do have a voice. So yeah, I would love to be able to represent people's opinions if they want to contact me. So on that note, don't send random emails to Martha. Please don't inundate her email box. But I think the point is that you are very influential in this universe. And if there's 
platforms and things that you can encourage that there's the infrastructure in place, hopefully that they can provide support for you, that I hope that happens because that's what I think what you're trying to do. That would be great. I mean, I do need support. I need my own support to be able to organize. And I'm very bad at writing grants because I don't have any time to do it. And I've been juggling all this, you know, kind of beside all the other jobs I have, but I'm passionate about it. I wish I had more agency to be able to do more, uh, be more effective. Maybe I'll figure out a way of doing that. Maybe I need to do that. So I'll be thinking about these things and try to make some of the questions and suggestions I heard tonight, you know, actually come into reality. I mean, I, I like, I like to build things. So I could build this. That'd be quite a legacy, just, you know, working on these climate change issues. And this room was pretty full today. I was one of the more full rooms that I saw today. So I think there was a lot of energy here and I, I, I hope that you can take advantage of that. And so last question, and I don't normally ask this for my smaller interviews. I do it for my larger interviews, but you're so connected in the field. If you could recommend one speaker in a future episode that I might have on and have a longer conversation, who would you recommend? Paul Hawken. He would love to come in. When he was told about what we were doing, because Pamela had a conversation with him, he was so excited about the fact that we as landscape architects were interested in what the book that he had just put out was going to be a central topic. So please contact him, have him come in and speak to the landscape architecture community. All right. Great suggestion. I've heard that before. Paul Hawkins is a legend out there. So no, that's wonderful. But thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, Doug. It's been a pleasure. Hey, Adapters, we are back, and I am with... Eric Gilbert, CEO of Innova Furnishings. So why are you here at this conference? This is the key market that our products uh, flow into, and so we show up here to talk to landscape architects every year and show them what's new and, and what's important to us and them. So you have taken, and you actually mentioned this at an event that you hosted last night, climate change, and I actually it would be interesting to maybe repeat some of those things. Climate change has become an important issue for you, and as a CEO of a, a corporation, I'm just curious, how, how did you come about wanting to focus on that issue? And I know it's it, it's related to your business, but it's something that you want to support and draw attention to, and you think the field of landscape architecture has a role in it. So what's the story there? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the story there is kind of, I guess, deeper and more straightforward and personal in some ways than anything to do with the business, right? It's the simple fact I have two children. I have a future uh, stake in this planet. I've grown up, you know, here for 40 plus years and seen what's changed from a climate standpoint. And I feel compelled to try to be part of what changes things in the right direction in terms of maybe stabilizing some of our experiences with with respect to weather and and I just see a lot of challenges and friction with with I, I think last night I mentioned um, even in the last few weeks right we've had Irma and Harvey and these fires in Northern California and and we're just living in it right now like so it's not in my mind it's not this sense of like is there global climate change or not it's we're in it and we've got to deal with it and figure it out. That's very refreshing to hear from a CEO of a corporation. So there are a lot of corporations here as part of the exhibit hall. And what is it with the, uh, your product and what you sell that you feel you've, you're kind of bringing that ethic into what you're doing? Yeah, I, I think we, we try to do it in a lot of ways with how we manufacture and how we think about what we do. But I think the most straightforward answer to that is uh, we at one point had to make a decision about what we want to use for wood. For a long time, we didn't bring wood to market, but then the customer base really demanded it. We want the warmth, we want the touch, the feel. And we looked at our options out there and saw that our vast majority of competitors were bringing sustainable 
uh, sustainably harvested tropical hardwoods to market, and we felt that there was just no way we could be another consumer of tropical hardwoods. And so we intentionally go after wood alternatives, uh, things that are treated to last a long time and uh, a lot more sustainably sourced. So you support a grant program, and I'm wondering if you could a little background, and you, you recruit people to come in to judge, and that's uh, we have a common interest there with Ellen Stewart, to, to judge this grant program, but recently the emphasis was on climate change. They selected it. You asked them to select it, and they fo- decided to focus on climate change. Could you give a little bit of background on that grant program? Sure. So a couple years ago when we were coming to the show, we recognized that it's kind of expensive. And if you're an emerging professional sacked with a lot of debt and a young family, it's maybe hard to hard to get to the show. So we created a grant program for emerging professionals. And uh, I grabbed three judges out of the, the workforce of landscape architects, uh, some thankfully relatively well-respected people. And I, I put it to them. I said, hey, if you have the ability to tap you know, the, some of the youngest, sharpest minds here in landscape architecture, what, what are you curious to to understand about what they're thinking. And they came back and clearly said both years, uh, that we've done it two years, it'll be going for a while. They said climate change was the most important thing they wanted to hear about. So we've crafted two questions. Last year's was more locally and regionally focused. This year's uh, was very clearly on the big picture of what are you going to do to stop global climate change. Good. I'm like, I like that focus. So you are a CEO of a corporation, and I don't hang out with CEOs very much, but I, I wonder... If you have conversations with other leaders from other corporations, and are you able to kind of bring up these issues that I guess are important to you, or do you hear, you sense that that's, those conversations are happening naturally, that they're talking sustainability? Are they talking climate change, or just doesn't, is it coming up at all? That's a really interesting question. I mean, first of all, like, it's not like I hang out in like a CEO club. <laughs> so, <laughs> but to the extent, to the extent I have those conversations, I see the market just absolutely moving and pushing everybody in this direction. Whether people call it climate change or not, we're all reacting to our customer base and our broad customer base, people in the world all recognize like what's happening to them. Whether they give it a name or not, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's still as harder to get to work when there are two feet of snow on the ground that didn't used to be you know, five years ago or whatever it is, whether it's a tidal wave hitting your, your front door or, you know, scorching fires. I mean, this is friction that the marketplace feels and, and reacts to. So I think CEOs everywhere are dealing with this, whether or not they want to call it climate change. Okay. So any thoughts for young landscape architects out there and you sort of what you might encourage them to do and get involved in? That's a great question. I, I think when it comes to global climate change, I think a lot of landscape architects get into the field because they're inspired and they're excited and, and then they get into the day to day and it's hard. They got to deal with clients. They got to deal with bosses. They got to deal with debt. They got to deal with, you know, day to day stuff. And it's maybe they lose track of that inspiration. And I guess my advice, my, what I would offer is that you got to find a way to go back to that well and remember why you got into it and know that you can make a difference and you are making a difference. And that's why I think getting to this national exposition is so critical and why this grant program is here, because that's what I hear from landscape architects when they come out of this is like, hey, I'm so refreshed and excited to get back to my job and and make a difference. And I think it's just important for young landscape architects to remember that they are making a difference and we appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's excellent. Hey, Adapters, we are back here in Los Angeles, and I am with... Brad McKee. I'm the editor of Landscape Architecture Magazine. What is your magazine all about, even though it's probably obvious from the title? Yeah, our magazine is now 108. 
eight years old. It was founded in 1910. Uh, so I guess that makes it 107. Um, we cover soup to nuts, landscape architecture, and anything we think our readers need to know outside of landscape architecture to do good landscape architecture. So what's your readership base? How like how many people would read your magazine? Uh, we have about 18,000 monthly subscribers, whether it's in print or digital. And we have readership that goes well beyond that on our website. So we are available, you know, obviously globally on the web, and we have a lot of readers around the world from online. I'm here to talk about climate change, and we had a chance to talk a little bit about this issue, but how is your magazine approaching climate change? And if you could dig into adaptation specifically, too, that would be great. I'll tell you what, we're looking at all all kind of dimensions of climate change and projects. We especially like looking at proposed plans for the future. Uh, always very interesting to look at places that are trying to get ahead of climate change, places like Central Florida, where despite the politics of the state government, a number of municipalities have decided they're going to do mitigation and adaptation, resiliency planning at the local level, regional level. Kind of counterintuitive when you think about Florida. We look at places like Greensburg, Kansas, which was leveled by an uh, F5 tornado that was a mile wide probably because of more vicious cyclonic patterns. We did a big story last year on the midstream effort to move people off the Ile de Jean Jean Charles in Louisiana, which is, they're called among the first climate refugees. That story has been covered widely by national news organizations, but we took a distinctly landscape architecture approach to it because there are landscape architects trying to figure out how to relocate these people in a way that will not be a shock to their system on higher ground in Louisiana. Um, We've done pieces on, one of my favorite pieces was on uh, the landscape designed by Cornelia Han Oberlander, kind of a a dean of our profession um, up in Inuvik, Alaska, uh, uh, Inuvik Northwest Territories, excuse me, on the Barents Sea. The town is built on permafrost. The permafrost is melting. They're losing access to their traditional hunting and fishing roads, the ice roads. She planted an entire foodscape for the new high school that they're building there with the architects who are based in Yellowknife and was trying to reacquaint them with the food source they always had but never exploited. So we look at food security. We look at ways people are managing retreat or managing adaptation. We've done a fair amount of coverage on New York's places like New York City and, and Louisiana where we have had disasters galvanize a large public and try to think about how to live differently. So really the whole spectrum. In some quarters, climate change is still controversial. Do you have readers that write in and ask you why you're bothering to cover this issue? We do. We have readers who run the range of opinion on climate change from ardent believers that it is happening and that it is caused by human activity. We have readers who would like to hear of anything except climate change, who, for whatever reason, don't care to engage with either the politics or the realities. So we don't dance around what we believe, which is that it is caused by uh, human activity, notably the burning of fossil fuels. But you can also appeal to people who may not believe, but know they need to deal with the effects of sea level rise. We're doing a big piece right now on Norfolk, Virginia, in the Hampton Roads area, where the sea is rising faster it's said to be rising faster because of tidal patterns and the land is sinking because of just natural subsidence or the weight of civilization, right? I've heard it put. And they haven't had a large sort of what I would call a galvanizing 
disaster moment. So, but the, the Navy in particular is very concerned about critical national infrastructure, defense infrastructure being upended by a, you know, a possible storm. So they're trying to plan. They have a lot of sunny day flooding down there. They have king tides. They have, you know, seawater coming up through the sewerage system. So they know, you know, if you can't get to the doctor because your street's flooded, you have to deal with that somehow or another. And it, you know, if we don't care whether everybody believes as long as they can go along with the solutions. So, but we're here to advocate for solutions that address the problem. I'm trying to use this podcast to let a broader universe know that landscape architecture is a very relevant field to adaptation that's lots of overlap in what you do do you want your magazine to be sort of a go-to resource to maybe to even people outside of landscape architecture and yeah could you maybe elaborate on you could be a adaptation resource Absolutely. We edit our magazine primarily for the um, core audience of landscape architecture professionals and then and educators. And outside of that rung, we're hoping we are read as widely as possible by allied professions in engineering and architecture and planning. But we also want decision makers to be able to understand. We basically edit it for the average ninth grader um, so that you know, young people can feel maybe they could access a career in landscape architecture. A lot of people come to landscape architecture as a second career, having tried something else, um, whether it was art or architecture or uh, public policy or something. We know that sometimes it's kind of a delayed appeal to people in life because they, they simply don't know that the profession exists beyond designing gardens, which is a very worthy thing to do. But it also works as powerfully on a large scale to talk about coastlines and watersheds and habitat corridors and wildlife, wildlife migration and species migration in general. We are working now on aggregating all of our coverage since 2012. I took over in 2010. I think we really started to knuckle down on climate in 2012. We're, we're aggregating all that coverage and future coverage in what we're calling the Lamb Climate Reader. So that'll be a place for people to go and find our previous coverage, and we hope it'll keep them coming back. This should come out sometime next year online. We hope they'll, they'll continue to come back to find our future coverage and hopefully discover the older stuff as well. But, yeah, it is issue Topic A at ASLA these days. Uh, ASLA just held a, a blue ribbon panel on climate change with about 20 professionals from all kinds of disciplines to try to push some push our leadership role. ASLA was named one of nine associations in Washington that is doing the most activity on professional organizations is doing the most activity around climate change. So it's pretty much right in the middle of our wheelhouse now. And we, but what we really like to do is find kind of the the difficulty. We really try to spot the difficulty, not just show a gallery of perfect projects all the time where, you know, oh, well, you know, we buttoned this up and then the park opened and everyone lived happily ever after. We actually want to learn more about like what goes wrong when you're trying to do adaptation and how how those problems can be addressed and, and ways people can learn. And, and that's kind of where the critique lies. I mean, we're not what I would call a critical journal. We focus on reportage and narrative and storytelling. But I think people learn a lot when we can hook up a reporter that, that a source can trust and get that source to tell us the good and the bad and the ugly about how do you stop Bridgeport, Connecticut, a poor part of Bridgeport, Connecticut, from flooding every time there's a high tide. 
So we like to get right in the middle and, and find the really messy part. That's the most fun thing we do. So maybe you've already done this, but I had a conversation with Martha Schwartz, who's a legend in the field. And one of the things I did not capture in my audio with her, she explained to me the bagel garden that she was responsible for. And for my listeners, she, <laughs> I can't really describe it too well, but she used bagels in this small garden really along, you know, when she was young uh, and landscape architect. And it just it was put on the cover of your magazine in 1979, and it created a bit of a revolution and it got all this attention. Is there an adaptation? Is there a climate change equivalent for your magazine today? Are you thinking on along those lines or do you think you've already done it? Where can that iconic cover and cover story be on adaptation? Well, I'll tell you, we've, we've kind of covered it, maybe not as big as the bagel garden. The bagel garden came at, and it was, um, I think a couple dozen bagels arrayed on a grid in what was otherwise, I think a fairly traditional garden. At the time, our, our profession has been ardently environmentalist, at least since 1966, when another legend, Ian McCarg, and one of my longtime predecessors, Grady Clay, and several other professionals gathered at Independence Hall to declare an environmental emergency in the United States. And this was before the EPA. This was before the Clean Water Act and so forth. So we just celebrated 50 years of that legacy last year with the Landscape Architecture Foundation. So Martha's Martha's garden came at a time when um, there was this uh, heavy ecological bent, and I think a lot of people saw what she was doing in an art in an art mode of operation as impertinent and as unimportant and frivolous. When really she succeeded, and and Grady Clay, the editor, succeeded in grabbing people's attention. Like it's you can do something other. You can do the unexpected. For this project, I would say um, probably one of the most iconic efforts has been, well, like, uh, several things came out of the uh, Rising Current show at, at the Museum of Modern Art in 2012, uh, 2010, sorry. The curator of architecture at the Museum of Modern Art was really looking at the futures, future issues in New York City. So he organized this show called Rising Currents. It was inspired by um, Catherine Sievet and her husband, Guy Nordenson. Um, Catherine's a landscape architect. Guy is an en- engineer. And they had conceived of all the problems. They had been developing conceptions of problems that New York City would face as waters rise. One of the most iconic projects out of that was called Oyster Texture. It was by the landscape architect, Kate Orff, who last week won a MacArthur um, Fellowship um, for her work. So well-deserved. That project went on after Hurricane Sandy. She developed that into a rock-solid proposal, one of six to be chosen by the Department of Housing and Urban Development to be developed as, you know, not only a demonstration, but as a as an actual adaptation project. And what that will do is place very simple oyster reefs. She may differ with the very simple part because it's not all that simple, but it's a very intuitive idea to rebuild the oyster population and habitat off the shores of New York that will attenuate waves, it will tidal action, it'll slow down the energy of of waves coming in from big storms, it will clean water, the oyster's a natural water filter, and it will also ideally provide employment by uh, reviving the oyster industry in New York City, which was killed, of course, by pollution, and but which could be very potentially very viable again. So, I mean, I would think that a lot of people in our business would point to that proposal as a revelation in probably on the same scale as the Bagel Garden. Final question or sort of your own final thoughts. And you sort of alluded to this, but for my listeners who are just in other fields, any sort of final pitch to why they should subscribe to your magazine? Yeah, we're, we're showing a wide range of 
uh, solutions that are working with living systems. And this is the difference between architecture, which I spent years working and publishing for, um, and landscape architecture. Everything in landscape architecture is living. It is dynamic. It is unpredictable, but it can, the, the, the natural muscle of landscape systems can be used to our advantage. Not something we've typically done, whether it's agriculture or city building or whatever. We've tended to just kind of try to get, try to get the natural systems out of our way in many ways to our great detriment. Um, and now landscape architecture is working so hard. It's a fairly young field compared to the centuries recognition of architecture as an art, uh, building art. Landscape really in the United States is about 160 years old, I would say, beginning with Frederick Law Olmsted in this country. Now, there's a tradition in Europe going farther back and in Japan and China and elsewhere. But really, landscape kind of very much bridges engineering and architecture. And I'm going to say unabashedly that it is the location of solutions to environmental threats caused by climate change. It's going to all kind of come together in the landscape. It's a good pitch to subscribe. So, all right, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Doug. Hey, adapters. We are back, and I am with... Jason Bingham. I'm a landscape designer, formerly in San Diego, on my way down to Brazil at the moment. So I'm actually quite excited to talk to Jason. He came up to me the other night and said he was a listener of the podcast. So I was thrilled that he actually recognized me. And so we got the chance to talk a little bit about the podcast. So that was a real treat. But I wanted to bring him on because he is a landscape architect. So what are you getting out of the conference? I think it's been really great to see the projects that everyone's working on. A lot of the solutions like we've just been talking about are well known to us in the field, but not necessarily so much to to the outside world, but seeing the actual implementation of it in some large scale projects and really like forward thinking projects has been really interesting for me. So as a young professional, you're, you're not too, I guess it's only been a couple of years since you were out of school. Do you feel like they gave you a solid grounding to really start thinking about climate change and landscape architecture? Yes, I would say so. I think some of the thinking is not, it's a little bit overly conservative in my mind. I think that we need to start dealing with climate change in a in a way that realistically addresses the magnitude of the problem and right now we're it, it, a lot of it feels a little bit like a band-aid over a bullet hole type type of thing but but it is a hot topic in the field everyone's talking about it so we're at least we're a lot further along in the conversation i think than than a lot of the rest of the world so what would you say to a, a young early career person i guess even looking at graduate school if they want to get an adaptation work why is landscape architecture a good field for them I actually started um, after college. I'd been planning on going into environmental law, and I, I went briefly to law school. But for me, landscape architecture was the way to do that environmental work in a practical way where you can actually see the effects once you finish a project. And and it's more fun, honestly. It's design. It's it's hands-on. It's field work. It's not just sitting in an office at a, at a law office all day. So for, I think it depends a lot on your personal inclinations. But for anyone who's who's more on the artistic, creative, design side, or who just wants to get their hands dirty, I think landscape architecture is the way to go. Awesome answer. So what's next for you? Moving down to Brazil, starting practice down there or joining a practice down there, getting married, and we'll see. Congrats to you. I hope that uh, the wedding goes all according to plan, but uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you. (laughs) 
Hey, adapters. So I hope you're enjoying these conversations with the best and brightest in the landscape architecture field. I have been getting some great interviews with some of the biggest names in the field, and I wanted to check back in with Ellen Stewart, who, if you recall, was the first person I had on, and I wanted to sort of check in with her and to see how the conference was going with her, and so you guys can kind of let your hair down as we get into the second half of this uh, podcast. Hey, Ellen, how's it going? It's going well. It's been a long few days, but it's good. So you, yeah, long for you, that's how most conferences kind of operate, but have you seen any presentations that really stood out for you and I guess more relevant to climate change or maybe just giving people a kind of sense of what, what landscape architecture is? I've, I've been going to different kinds of, of sessions because I am a landscape architect in parks and recreation, but there are several different focuses that landscape architects have. So it's interesting because we do focus on design and ecology, policy, practice, business development, and community engagement. I've been really more focused on the things that have to do with parks and recreation, but also been trying to go to things that are more related to the climate change and adaptation, especially since ASLA, or the American Society of Landscape Architects, has been working towards trying to develop and uh, direct the policy and practice for our profession as related to that. We've had the Landscape Declaration by the Landscape Architecture Foundation and ASLA, and then also there was a recent Blue Ribbon panel on climate change that ASLA held to just kind of forward what we're going to do in the future as it relates to landscape architecture and climate change. So I I thought that it was good that there are more focus on, there's a more focus on, uh, on climate adaptation, but I'm also curious to find out what you're finding and to hear the podcast once it's, once it's published. Well, I went to a few presentations on climate change and I I guess I can talk about that maybe at the end, but I'm Mm -hmm. excited that, the field is, I guess, <laughs> excited themselves about embracing adaptation. Of course, that doesn't apply to everyone, but people have been very friendly to me, which is a good thing, but they're excited that I'm focusing this podcast on landscape architecture because I think a lot of them think it, it's a perfect fit, and that's been coming out in some of my conversations that people have already heard, that it's just a perfect fit for uh, what adaptation means for the natural resources and the built environment, and I'm starting to see that. I still think it's early days for your field, yep. but it, I think some really exciting work starting to come out of you, what you guys are doing. And I think, I think a lot of the stuff that we've done, we have considered ourselves to be green forever and that we've been, a you know, designing infrastructure for cities and doing built environment stuff in a way that is taking care of the systems and the natural resources, um, looking at long-term stuff rather than just looking at the people and the needs of the people. But so I think that there is a definitely a knee-jerk reaction to people hearing that we maybe are just starting up because we're an older profession. But at the same time, we haven't been using the term adaptation. We've been using resiliency and sustainability and even, you know, some other terms like regenerative design. But we haven't been using the term adaptation, which I also think is an interesting aspect of this is the semantics. Okay, let me get back out there and talk to some more landscape architects, but I will check back in with you at the end of this conference. So uh, I'll talk to you soon. Great. See you on the other side. Hey, adapters. We are back in Los Angeles, and I am with... 
Barbara Deitch, and I'm the CEO of the Landscape Architecture Foundation. So what does the foundation do? The mission of the Landscape Architecture Foundation is to support the preservation, improvement, and enhancement of the environment. And we do that through landscape architecture and landscape architects, the only designers for natural processes, natural resources, and with people in a cultural context, putting it all together as designers to help achieve sustainability. So what would you say some of your initiatives are at the foundation? Our key initiatives are based in research, scholarships, and leadership. So increasing the capacity of landscape architects to influence and help achieve the mission. We focus on research. Our key initiative is based in landscape performance, so showing the value of sustainable landscape solutions and many tools and resources with quantified environmental, social, and economic benefits data on the value of landscape solutions as opposed to traditional or conventional development or maybe different ways of approaching it, an architectural or engineered approach looking at a landscape approach. We also focus on scholarships and leadership programs to cultivate the next generation of leaders. Okay, so this, I guess, a bit of an exciting time. You have a new book out. What's this book all about? Absolutely. We are very excited. The book is about the 21st century call to action for landscape architects. We uh, celebrated our 50-year anniversary last year and coming out of the foundation formed in the 60s. This was the time of the environmental crisis. The rivers were on fire. They were septic. The air was so polluted in cities, you couldn't breathe. And uh, so there's a call to action. How can landscape architects better make their mark, their vital contribution in solving the environmental crisis. So the environmental crisis, the civil rights movements, we're at war. And now 50 years later, reflecting upon where we've been and then looking to the future. What is the new call to action for landscape architects to make their vital contribution to help solve the defining issues of our time, which were defined in the new landscape declaration. And that's the uh, what's in the book. And looking at the defining issues of climate change, global warming, rapid urbanization, mass species extinction, and inequity. So I'm very excited to see that climate change is one of the primary things in this declaration. And I think it's kind of exciting your field has a declaration. Not everybody does that. Was it a hard push to get climate change so front and center or members and just the community behind it? No, everyone was behind it. I think there was some discussion, well, is it the defining issue of our time or what about these other issues? And yes, they're all interrelated, but I think you could have some of those other issues, rapid urbanization, potentially without climate change. So we, we did want to highlight all of them, but definitely climate change is the defining issue of our time. And looking at the role of landscape architects to help design solutions that mitigate and adapt to climate change and that provide resilient solutions. And especially now, sadly, and we'll see more of this, but all the environmental disasters we're having and not just the environmental piece, but the social piece with the refugees as a result of these environmental disasters, looking at the importance of the landscape architects to be leaders and assertive and act, act now to help rebuild our cities and communities. And I think in the declaration, uh, there's several calls to action, but one key message is, is that it's not enough to be a good designer. You have to be an active designer. And that can take many shapes and forms. We're not prescribing it, but we're just trying to inspire everyone to act. And it's not to say that landscape architects aren't already doing lots of amazing, transformative things, but just to realize with the urgency 
of the situation today that we need to maybe refocus, redouble our efforts on being more active and a voice and a leader in this area? Okay, so you have big events like the hurricanes that hit Houston and hit Florida, even Hurricane Sandy. And landscape architects, it's obvious, have a role to play in the restoration of these cities. And I'm just curious, are you guys designed in a way like you have rapid response teams because people want to do things quickly or on the cheap? And But at the same time, it seems like a huge opportunity to go into these communities and do things better. Do you guys try to actively, and, and there's a lot of money swimming around with all the rest work that they need to do. Is that something that you get involved in? That's something we've just spent the last couple of days uh, on the board of directors with the foundation, looking at the foundation's role in, again, increasing the capacity of landscape architects to do that. We call it multiply the effectiveness of a limited number of landscape architects. And so uh, certainly integrating the calls to action within our research and targeting content on climate change and solutions and our scholarships with this network of students that we have, our Olmstead scholars, over 550 of them to that are like looking for things to do. Everyone wants to act. So looking at from the foundation's perspective, how to best help them act and then to report their stories. So many of them are doing that and uh, to inspire others to do the same. You have this declaration, and I again, I think that's fascinating and inspiring, but at the same time, you create these documents, and what do you do with them? And I know you have a call to action, but how do you get your community to really take the charge? And did they listen to the original one from 1966? Has that really been a defining declaration for your field? I'll start with the 1966 declaration. I think I can't say that it was on the top of everyone's mind for 50 years? <laughs> Probably not. And, but I will say that the calls to action or the four-pronged strategy were to focus on more programs and recruitment and, and have a standard of quality for the programs and a focus on research from whence LAF adopted that as, as part of its key strategies, as well as I like how they called for a nationwide system to communicate exemplary work. Well, now we have the internet, but you know, which helps take it globally. But yeah, but I think moving, looking forward with the new declaration, LAF's role to continue to inspire people to act, set that expectation, and then tell their stories of how they are doing it to inspire others. But also looking, we're looking to come out with not a checklist, but okay, here's some things you can do. If you're looking for guidance on what to do, here's some things yeah, you can do right now. Here's some things that you can do tomorrow. And one of those things is how do we respond to these environmental disasters? And certainly with uh, leaders on our board who are from Puerto Rico or, you know, in the Bay Area or Houston and, and trying to see what we can effectively and reasonably do to bring together a critical mass that, that could help make sure they take a role or figure out what's going on and how to, I think it's a big black box when these things happen and you're in shock. You need things like food, shelter and clothing and, and, and then that, then you transition into the longer, out of the crisis mode, into the longer rebuilding efforts. And kind of the in-between is a little messy with lots of groups and leaders and citizens, you know, trying to figure out what to do and how to do it. And so we're, we're trying to figure out how, how to best help with that. So as a n- newcomer to this field, I can sort of observe and say, oh, I'm learning these things. And I think 
landscape architects would say that the nature of what you guys do requires partnerships and working with other sectors. But at the same time, I've been hearing just side conversations here that you guys are actually kind of insular and you know, you don't do that. And I'm just curious, what's your take? What's Are, are you guys really getting out there? Because I think of your foundation. I come from a conservation background and I wasn't overlapping much with landscape architects, but there is those opportunities. And so do you feel like you're doing it well or are there areas that you could improve upon? Definitely areas we can improve upon and that's what we're working on. I think, I, I know I didn't even know what a landscape architect was. Uh, it was a career change for me and I discovered it through some volunteer work. I thought I wanted to be an architect and they said, no, you, because we were looking at designing communities that, uh, new urbanist communities that were better for people and better for the environment. And they said, oh, I want to be an architect. And they said, no, you want to be a landscape architect. And I was like, what's that? <laughs> you know, I didn't even know. Uh, and then I did some research and found out what it was. I thought, wow, this is the greatest profession, but people don't know what you do. So we do have an aware, a public awareness problem, which affects recruitment and understanding of the potential for all the ways to work with. But that being said, this declaration is a call to action to not just sit there and wait for the good fairy to tap you on the shoulder and say, yes, it's your time, right? There is the age of engineering, the age of architecture. This is, we think, the age of landscape architecture to help solve the defining issues of our time. But we have to get out there and uh, make it happen. So trying to cultivate this culture of being more active and getting involved. And from LAS perspective, looking at uh, through partnerships, organizations, thank goodness there's tons of organizations already doing amazing things. And just how can we engage with them on projects or informing policy conversations to include that landscape approach and, and solutions? Okay. So final question, if people want to learn more about what you do or get a copy of this book or what can they do? You can go to lafoundation.org as well as landscapeperformance.org and learn more about our tools and resources and the Landscape Architecture Foundation to help use landscape to advance climate change solutions. And if you like the book, that's great. You can order it online from Pals or Amazon, uh, other sources. You can find that on our website as well. All right, I'll have a link to it on my show notes when the episode comes out. But thank you so much. Thank you, Doug, so much for the opportunity and all the great work that you're doing. Hey, Adapters, we are back in Los Angeles, and I am here with... Matt Alside of Land8, Landscape Architects Network. Okay, so what is Land8? Land8 is a social network for landscape architects. They use Land8 uh, to sign up and register a profile they upload their projects. They ask each other questions. So it's really an online community of landscape architects to engage with each other. And we also share a lot of content uh, outside of landscape architects to really promote the profession internationally. So is it sort of the equivalent of a Facebook just for landscape architects? Exactly. So it's its own online community. It functions similar to Facebook where you could add friends, build your own profile, and post on each other's walls and ask questions and reply to forum topics. So are you tracking in the forum topics? Do you kind of get a sense of what they're talking about? Definitely. Yeah, we have pretty broad categories to focus in the conversations a little bit. And then once you get in there, you get pretty detailed with the different topics that's important that are important to landscape architects, uh, anywhere from sustainability to details and plans and their favorite projects, the designs and designers. So have you heard much chatter on climate change? Is it a topic that's coming up more on that network? Yes, definitely over the last few years. Everyone's very engaged over the 
topic of climate change. We have a lot of landscape architects understand the the need to address this issue. They feel that they are a tremendous resource when it comes to this, so they're struggling with how they become more of an authority when it comes to projects and being the lead on the projects. So when they're speaking on Land 8, a lot of the time it's how do we have more influence on decision-making and how projects get built. Okay, just so I have this correct, though, so people can become members of ASLA, but LandAid is really sort of, it's a platform for those kind of people to come together and share information, right? Right. Uh, we try to keep the list as clean as possible. It's for landscape architects and those in related professions, such as architects, they could also sign up. But we try to keep the user profiles to strictly landscape architects, as well as some allied professionals, just to make sure that it's a... Uh, form that they can discuss freely and openly that maybe they can't elsewhere. But we also have a big segment of our website, landate.com, and our associated Facebook pages uh, with over 1.4 million followers where we share the work of landscape architects. And it's not just landscape architects. It's people interested in what the work, people interested in the work of landscape architects and their designs and their landscape projects that they're working on and seeing beautiful designs that come about and how it changed various communities across the world. Okay, so that I was going to ask that. If folks that aren't landscape architects want to really dig into what they're doing, they can go to landate.com and just start digging around in this information. Correct. Yep. You, pretty, you have Anybody has access to most of the information. The only thing that's limiting is the comment section and building a profile, adding friends. But other than that, all of our content and articles by our staff of 40 writers is available to anybody to, to read. And we share it through our social media channels, which gets a lot of attention uh, and reaches a lot, very wide audience through there as well. Okay, great. I'll share some of the links for the social media on the show notes, but thank you very much. Thanks, Doug. Hey, Adapters. We are back here at the conference, and I am with... Stephanie Landrigan, the Director of Landscape Architecture at UCLA Extension. Okay, so why are you here? I'm here because we're in my city, Los Angeles, and we're really glad that people are here. We also want people to know about our program, which is offered during the evening for people to change their careers, to become sustainable, and to become landscape architects. So how do you feel your program is addressing the issue of climate change adaptation? Well, we are aware of the fact that natural resources and natural systems need to be incorporated into every design. Our design philosophy is that you must take care of several things before you take care of the final function. So, for example, a parking structure. The parking structure also should be green. It should deal with stormwater. It should deal with uh, habitat. And then it should deal with parking cars. It also should deal with alternative forms of transportation once you park your car. That deals with all of the effects of climate change that we've kind of left out of design. Because you get the future you want by the designs you make. Is there any particular coursework that addresses climate change directly, or do you feel it's sort of a byproduct of what you already offer? I would say most of our classes have a climate change understanding, but we do teach stormwater management classes in which are specific to dealing with the kind of climate that we have here in L.A., which are intense volumes of water left in like columns of rain in a short amount of time, as well as any uh, fires, which are part of climate change. 
So we deal with the issues that are really more local, but I think national and international, as we see more and more, we have also, we're coastal. What's going to happen when we have sea level rise? How are we going to deal with it? All of our capstone projects deal with an element of the climate becoming much more important to all of our design. Do you feel any of your clients ask specifically about how you might address climate change? Or do you take it upon yourself to sort of integrate that into your program? Well, my I have a small firm on the side. It's called Wild by Design, and it specifically deals with climate-appropriate landscape architecture. So I deal with not just putting the broccoli around the stake, as some people have referred to landscape architecture, but I deal with the fact that the whole site has to be responsive to all of the rain that we have or any of the other climate elements that we have, understanding the soil, understanding the solar orientation, and capturing rainwater that we have. So I I think I'm chosen uh, by my clients because of the methods that I employ in all of my designs. Okay, last question. Are the UCLA Bruins going to be any good in basketball this year? Yes, they are. And But I must tell you, the Bruins, basketball is what we live and breathe. It's our religion. And uh, we're going we're gonna to take it, I hope. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. You have a terrific day. Hey, Adapters, we are back, and I am with... April Phillips from April Phillips Design Works, Landscape Architect. Okay, so I just watched a presentation that you gave, it, and it was great. So could you t- explain really quickly what you were talking about? Yes, this session was about climate adaptation throughout three different regions, the Northwest, which I talked about, uh, Southwest, and the South. So we were trying to show what was universal about it and what was different. You spent a lot of time talking about this project at the former Alameda Naval Space. And to me, it looked like a really ambitious project. It talked a lot about sea level rise, and you had some great modeling software. So who developed that software for you? We actually did it in-house. So um, we're a small firm, but we like to call ourselves um, digital thinkers. We used a combination. We started with a, th- a 3D model program, which just sketch up, which most landscape architects have. And then what we were able to do was we took that into, we actually had, because the project is 70, 70 acres, we had every different architect give us their 3D model and it got combined together. And then we brought it into Lumion by taking our design into Lumion. It, it's a an animation program that gamers use, but we find it kind of interesting and easy to work with. And uh, it also does fly through. So by doing this, we were able to, we thought that we would be able to use it not only to just fly through the design, but then talk about things like sea level rise and do more outreach with it. So having that visual element, I imagine, is really helpful when you're talking to some of the planners and the city officials and such. And I guess there helps them to kind of understand what you're trying to do. That's correct. And I think that's the most important tool. Um, it's, it's not really to explain ecology per se, but it, it tries to explain visually how it really is going to impact people. You know, what does 12 inches really mean? You know, when you look at it flat, yes, everything's just covering it up. But how does it look as it's lapping up and coming up? And and what does recede, for example, mean? You can actually see it. So I think that helps people grasp the concepts better. 
as I was looking at this and these various options, if they go ahead with it, it looked very expensive, but these things are going to cost money. But I immediately thought that this is in a coastal area and it's surrounded by coastal land. So even if they invest and do all the things that you recommend in this project, if the surrounding coastline really isn't evolving too, how do you kind of see this project? Will it be kind of surrounded by degraded coastal area? That's a, a great question. I mean, the base itself uh, is 350 acres. So our little 70 acres is just a blip in, in the, the development. And we are looking at the cost impacts as well. So as we design, we're going through those kinds of changes. I think the biggest thing is designing for things over time. And that's one of the things we're trying to look at is that will our project be a catalyst and have a couple of these different options? So from both um, the, the thing, areas that are able to flood, areas that are able to be uh, protected, like the levees, able to, I would say areas that have terraces and so forth, as well as the more naturalistic. If we can put a couple of those into our project, we think that that could trigger more understanding and more development in the future that could take those on. So we see ourselves as a catalyst project. We're not, we are worried or nervous about the other aspects, but we also realize that we shouldn't be. We can't be because it's out of our control. Well, you can't let it paralyze you from doing the work at hand. Okay, this is sort of taking a side discussion. One of the other presentations talked about one of these communities, this tribal community that's going to potentially be flooded out. This is in Louisiana and the culture that's lost. And I'm just curious your opinion on that. I, I hear this a bit and this idea of maintaining the integrity. And she even mentioned at one point that they would still like to maintain the sort of this coastal living that they do, even if they have to kind of retreat. And just curious your thoughts on the ability to maintain that cultural identity. Well, it's funny that you ask me because actually I am originally from New Orleans. So I kind of understand what was being talked about. And, you know, when Katrina happened, people just don't want to leave New Orleans. It might be a one of the right answers because it's getting more expensive and more expensive to do it. But then you do lose the sense of culture. So I'm not sure the optimal answer because I think it's going to, we're just going to have to make decisions because we're just going to have no choice. But right now we have choice understanding people and what might happen. I mean, I, how might we, preserve their culture, preserve their space? Is there an option to create a more floatable community that could still give them access to our, do they have to move or the, might we shift it, you know, maybe a mile away rather than say that they're going to have to go inland seven miles. So I don't know the answer. I think that if we put our brains to work, try to figure out how to get everybody at the table, both politics, community, really talk to the community, but Maybe look outside the box a little bit and not just think, oh, I just have to move this development over here and try to be more creative about it. And that's what I think. Well, and what stood out to me is when she just said that they would like to maintain some of the practices that they had prior, even if they're moving somewhere else. And I guess the politically incorrect answer is just like, well, maybe you're giving those things up. Climate change is a big deal and the cultural integrity is going to be a tough one. And I think of people in Miami these are not tribal people, but they have a coastal lifestyle. They have a culture. And if they have to retreat, which they will, well, what if they say they want to have a, a beach lifestyle? Well, they might have to give that up. And so anyway, it stood out for me. And some tough decisions are going to have to be made. 
Yes. And, you know, I think the beaches are going to move. I mean, that's the simple answer is as we retreat, the beaches also retreat. So in some ways, we're still going to have that coastal living or the coastal lifestyle. It's just that we might have to be shifting it and and move with the shifts. And I mean, that's the thing about time. It allows us to try to have places where we do do these shifts and see if it works. And then we can, you know, talk about it more coherently or cohesively to other communities. Okay, this is great. Thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Hey, Adapters, we are back here in Los Angeles again, and I am with... Leslie Johnson. I'm a student at the University of Minnesota and a third-year master's program. Okay, so what brings you to this conference? I'm so I'm in my yeah last year, so I'm just interested in getting more of a broad overview of what landscape architecture is about, get to meet some new people and yeah, hear about the big themes. So if all goes to according to plan in two, three years, where do you see yourself? Well, I'd like to be working. I really like the firms that are working interdisciplinary with between architects and planners and landscape architects. I would love to work on international projects, working on some of the big themes of climate change and advocacy. Do you feel like climate change has shown up in your coursework at the University of Minnesota? Definitely. Uh, one of the big things that made this conference especially relevant for me, a few weeks ago we were back, we were in the... San Francisco Bay Area. Our current studio is on sea level rise around San Francisco. So we were just talking with different people about the effect that sea level rise inevitably will have on people and the profession. And there were a lot of talks today and yesterday about sea level rise. So I met you just coming out of the sea level rise presentation. What stood out for you in that presentation? I really, what I thought was most interesting was just the idea that we can't have a rigid idea of shoreline anymore. I liked what I think it was Christina Hill said about the people need to be okay with getting wet, just not to have really rigid infrastructure anymore, that there are times that buildings will flood and that there will be these times of the year where that happens. And we need to change our idea of, of what is okay and what scares us, that making it be something we live with and not see it so much as a threat, but perhaps opportunity and are you a member of ASLA? I am. Do you feel they're doing enough on climate change? Do you like what they're producing through their magazine or here at these conferences? And if not, what would you recommend? Well, I think I was impressed that there were as many talks here about sea level rise and climate change. I guess I haven't, this could be that I'm a student. I haven't had as much time to be reading the magazine lately besides looking at the nice pictures and reading some of the interviews. I don't think I've seen as much written about climate change or when there's been talk about climate change, what are concrete steps that landscape architects can do? There's a lot of empowerment around it that we need to be concerned with these issues, but it's not always clear how that translates into the profession. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, Adapters. We are back in Los Angeles, and I am with... Pamela Conrad. I'm an associate landscape architect with CMG Landscape Architecture based out of San Francisco, California. I went to your session yesterday. I think it was called Leading the Charge. It was related to climate change and how your field needs to address climate change. What inspired you to set up that session? Well, honestly, it's been research that I've been 
pursuing over the last year and a half or so. And that was spurred by a presentation that Martha Schwartz gave at the Landscape Architecture Foundation Declaration in Philadelphia. And it was a presentation that was meant to inspire landscape architects to get involved in climate change and not just in adaptation, but also in mitigation. So how long have you been involved with landscape architecture? I mean, you've been, you went to school, but how long have you been practicing it? Yeah, I've been practicing about 14 years. Uh, I grew up in the Midwest. I live in California. I've lived in Shanghai. I've lived all over the world. So I've had the opportunity to practice for a while now. And I'm really coming to realize that my focus at the moment is tackling the biggest challenge in the world right now, which is climate change. Excellent. So 14 years, you're not some newcomer. You've been doing this for a while, but would you say that you were trained in climate change? Did they give you sort of the background you needed even before you kind of started this professionally? Well, definitely not in climate change specifically, but I've always had a passion for sciences. So my undergraduate degree was plant science from the University of Missouri. And then I went to Cal Poly Pomona and got my master's in landscape architecture. And that program has been known for since the 70s in sustainability practices, sort of where that first movement was coming from. And so, you know, I was educated on sustainability, and that's been a passion of mine, and sciences. But I think until recently, I've been trying to put the pieces together of how we can use that knowledge uh, from the sciences, from design, and how landscape architecture can really have a role in fighting climate change. So you are at a private firm though, right? Yes, that's correct. So do you feel that they encourage you to work on climate change? It, are your clients requesting these things? How how can you work on it outside of like, what's your day job, your billable hours? Yeah, definitely. Well, I started at our firm primarily with our partner, Kevin Conger, started getting involved in um, sea level rise adaptation, community participation engagement several years ago. And that was a grassroots effort that started in Southern Marin just to engage people and start talking about what's going to happen when sea level rise comes. And so that conversation has been happening for years now. And we've been working at in Southern Marin, on Chrissy Field, and Treasure Island um, specifically over the last several years. And then me personally, I've been managing the Treasure Island project, which um, set forth changes in the Bay Plan Amendment to regulate sea level rise adaptations and mandate that for all projects in the Bay Area. So we as a practice have been working on it for quite a while now in the San Francisco Bay Area. But uh, in terms of mitigation, actually tackling the causes of climate change, this is a relatively new conversation, something that Martha and I are very passionate about and been working on over the last couple of years now. So it's a new conversation, but that landscape architects have the role to play in climate change is twofold. It's one in adaptation. It's also in mitigation. When my conversation with Martha, and I'll probably put our conversation right here after Martha, so this makes sense to my listeners, that she talked about focusing on mitigation. And you and I briefly chatted yesterday and the strong emphasis in your presentation on mitigation. And I tried to pull her back toward adaptation and saying that, you know, landscape architecture, it's just that and our adaptation is almost interchangeable. It's a, there's such an overlap in what you guys do. But you did emphasize mitigation yesterday in your presentation. So why is that? Well, really, because nobody's talking about it yet. That, for one, we already know that we have a role to play in, in adaptation. We know sea level rise is happening. We're actively participating in the Rebuild by Design work in New York, Resilient by Design competition in the San Francisco Bay Area. But nobody realizes that we can do so much when it comes to actually reducing the greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere just through the things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis in landscape architecture. And we can actually hone those skills and tools that we have 
to make a big difference in greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere and help with reversing climate change. I totally agree with you on that, but in some ways I almost feel like you're jumping the shark and that expression of like you're kind of getting ahead of yourself. I don't think your field, landscape architecture, knows how much they need to be doing in adaptation. Not that I'm discouraging from dealing with mitigation in your work, but just my sense is that you just described that, oh, well, of course, adaptation. I don't see it happening necessarily yet. And so hopefully there's a way that you can kind of parallel address both of those things. Uh, I agree with you to some extent. Not all landscape architects are actively working on sea level rise adaptations. There are a few firms that are, are focusing on it right now, and it's getting more attention. But it actually is being implemented. We're building Treasure Island right now. We're building a new city in the bay, and it's already been designed to adapt to sea level rise. So we are building that. We are going to be working on the San Francisco seawall project, which is along the Embarcadero. So we are going to adapt to that edge. Those are active projects that are going on, but no one is working on mitigation. Nobody is focusing on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So that is why we're jumping on board right now and trying to rally people around this because it's what landscape architects can incorporate in their work every day. And they just don't know it yet. Okay. And this is, I'll, I'll joke, but you're from California. You're from San Francisco. Damn it. You're at the head of the line of all these cool things. And so you have landscape architects in Alabama and the Southeast, and they're not even talking about climate change. And so, yeah, you've, you've already sort of jumped the gun on adaptation and you get to do those things here in California because you have a supportive environment to do that. And so I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is how would you encourage maybe people more nationally to get involved with these issues? Is there a structured way to do it? it? Be it, do you think they should jump right into mitigation when it comes to landscape architecture projects? Well, and just to set the record straight, I'm actually from Missouri. I'm a farm girl from the Midwest. I don't have an Ivy League degree. I didn't have a way paid for me. So I'm just somebody that's been working as hard as I can every day to make a difference. And yes, we are a little bit more proactive in California, and there are people that are listening to us right now. But I think that I do think that landscape architects in Missouri can change how they're doing things to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of their projects. So I think that that's one thing that everybody can start doing actively. And we don't have to wait for legislation. We don't have to wait for treaties. We don't have to, to wait for politics to tell us that we have to do something. We can just change the way we're doing things right now. Are you mentoring younger landscape architects? Are there opportunities for like someone like you who's just jumped into this? Because I, I, I think of the, the crowd that you had. You had a pretty big crowd at that session yesterday, and there was a lot of energy to, to do something. So what do you hope to do? Are, are there opportunities for you to kind of really spread your message? Definitely. I mean, we have, you know, besides our group of 40 people firm in San Francisco, I'm hoping to sort of take the show on the road, I guess, as you call it, and start reaching out to universities. And like Martha, she's getting programs into the Harvard GSD on climate change mitigation. And so I'm also going to help out on the West Coast side of things and hoping to visit Cal Poly San Luis Obispo um, in the coming months. And so I think that Anybody that's interested in talking about it and having the conversation, I'd be more than happy to visit, start those conversations, because I think it's going to be a multi-generational challenge. A couple more questions here. And so I've had this conversation with a couple of people, and even with Martha, she is known for her famous bagel garden. It's just this world-famous uh, thing that she did when she was much earlier in her, her career. And I asked uh, Brad McKee from the Landscape uh, Architect Mac architecture magazine is there some iconic adaptation project out there and i think kate orff was brought up but do you feel like it's out there or is it remain to be sort of 
done? Is there some sort of iconic thing that your field can produce or has already produced that people can look to to sort of be inspired and to learn from this? Definitely. I think that the Rebuild by Design competition in New York that was in response to Hurricane Sandy is is and was at the forefront of design for landscape architecture being involved in adaptation. Now, those projects are now being implemented, and so you can see the, you know, the inspirational images that were produced and the big ideas several years back. I think it was five years ago now. And that work is actually being implemented on the East Coast. And as far as the West Coast goes, we are just embarking on this Resilient by Design Challenge. And so that work, uh, I think 10 teams were selected uh, recently. Our firm was one of them, and that work is going to unfold over the next year in the Bay Area. And... It hopes to be inspiring, groundbreaking, and hopefully politically changing. Okay, a final question. And for, I guess, my younger listeners, if they're getting involved with adaptation and they want to use landscape architecture as a model, are there programs that you would recommend? Who's really kind of doing some cool work on climate change? Well, I I honestly, I think that practitioners are trying to get involved in academics. I know that Kate Orff teaches at Columbia. Um, Christina Hill at UC Berkeley has been you know, leading the charge for sea level rise adaptation. But honestly, it's been a kind of a grassroots effort where people are going out there and trying to teach. Um, there, there, isn't a, there isn't a software program, definitely. Um, there are schools that are pushing the boundaries, and I would say that you can get in touch with one of those universities. I guess I have one final question. Do you feel like your restaurant choices are better in San Francisco than Missouri? No comment. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hey, adapters. So that is a wrap for all the conversations I had at this conference. It was a real treat for me. I think that was 13 or 14 different people. And like I said earlier, we, I, Ellen Stewart was there at the beginning and she came on toward the middle and I want to bring her on here at the very end before we wrap this all up. Hey, Ellen. Hey, Doug. How are you? Great. I'm a little bit tired. Um, my voice is a little bit cracky from all these interviews, but it's been an exciting four or five days for me. You made it out in a full piece. <laughs> I did. Again, <laughs> the theme of the, the field being very interested in playing a role in adaptation, it came out in a lot of my conversations. And I think people, what they just heard that there's some really exciting work coming on. And I mean, I think there's some areas for improvement, but overall, I'm excited to learn more about what you guys are up to. Great. So what was the most interesting thing that you think you learned about landscape architecture? Well, as you told me once, it's not just about uh, <laughs> making a park in the middle of the city. It's a much <laughs> richer and varied field than that. And I, and I learned that uh, big time. I guess what stood out for me is that I think there's this maybe friction going on. And as you said earlier, that landscape architecture, ha- that you guys have been green for a long time. And so sustainability has been with us for decades. But adaptation is actually it's only been a really mature field for five, ten years and I think some landscape architects are confusing the two terms of sustainability and adaptation, and they're trying to apply the same principles to both. So I, I sense that that's changing in some of the conversations I had. They, those speakers seem to recognize that, but I think it's going to take a little bit of time as it kind of gets into, you know, your academic programs at universities. And so that sort of stood out, but I thought what really was helpful and I hope my listeners is that you guys rely on partnerships across sectors, you know, with engineers and just elected officials that you're sort of at the center of all this planning and 
that kind of skill set is really important, independent of sort of the technical adaptation planning that you're doing. And so I think there's a huge opportunity with what you guys typically do to apply that more broadly to adaptation. I agree. I became a landscape architect because I wanted to be an expert in something. And then I realized quickly that we're much more generalists in things. And that's where my skill set is. I'd prefer to be something that's catalyzing other things and helping lift up other professions and people in the community. So I'm not an expert at anything, (laughs) but I'm okay with that because I really appreciate what we do as a profession. And I think that that's even more valuable than knowing, you know, some really very granular information about something specific. Right. In a couple of the conversations, they really made a point, too, of that it landscape architecture is just not about planning. But and, you know, Martha Schwartz, a very big name in landscape architecture, it, it's mm-hmm. people who are who are considered artists or consider themselves artists. They gravitate toward landscape architecture. There's sort of applied nature to that art. And that stood out, too. And I think that's going to hopefully recruit more people into the field of adaptation. And so, again, I think a, a, a highlight of the field. Great. Yeah. I think that what we do also is making places beautiful so that people are attached to them so that they will be stewards of them is a huge part of it too. And bringing people and the environment together so that we continue that. Ellen, I think I'm going to wrap this up, but thank you for coming on. And if I haven't acknowledged it before, Ellen was the principal reason I am at this conference. And I want to thank you, Ellen, for making that happen and making those connections. And uh, I'm looking forward to the feedback that I get from this episode because I, I think there was some really great content. Good. I'm really excited. I'm so glad that you made it. Thanks, Doug. And maybe I will see you next year in Philadelphia. All right. I hope so. All right. Thanks again, Ellen. And from Los Angeles, this is America Adapts. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. I so enjoyed this episode. When I get to interview multiple people, you really get to dig into that topic. Thank you to all my guests. You can find links to their websites in my show notes. So before we wrap this up, I wanted to share a few takeaways. I found the sustainability versus adaptation conflict really fascinating. As you can tell from the guests in the episode, landscape architecture as a field is a leader in adaptation planning, and yet there are many ways it needs to catch up as a sector. I hope some of these speakers and what they had to say can help drive some of that change within landscape architecture through the universities, professional societies, and government agencies that employ landscape architects. Based on the many conversations I had with landscape architects at the conference and many that you did not hear in this episode, they seem very driven to get engaged in climate change in their professional lives. The future looks bright for landscape architecture. I hope other adaptation professionals recognize the opportunities with engaging this field. My personal background is in conservation policy and planning, and I don't recall a single conversation with a landscape architect. That's a problem. Adaptation offers a pathway for better collaboration between many sectors. There are a lot of companies out there interested in doing the right thing on sustainability. Hopefully, landscape architects can play an active role to get them to think more about adaptation. The private sector has a huge role to play in the coming decades. And finally, and most importantly, these landscape architects just seem like a fun group of people. Maybe I'm being naive, but... Egos were in check and people just seem ready to do something positive with their jobs. That makes me very hopeful for their potential influence on the adaptation world. Again, I want to thank Anova Furnishing for generously sponsoring this podcast. Please check out their website in my show notes to learn more about how they promote landscape architecture and also some of their granting work that benefits adaptation. Thanks, Anova. Okay, some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Daps and ask to join, and I'll prove you right away. 
It's a chance to hear insider info on the podcast and see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. Some great conversations have come out of that group. Also, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. Seriously, it's the highlight of my week hearing from you, and sometimes it leads to really cool things. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. I hear from people from all over the planet. I want you to be the next. Okay, check out the website at americadaps.org. All this information is in my show notes, especially that link to the donate page. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.